Well, it's a pleasure to introduce our uh, final speaker for the program, a colleague at the Cato Institute, uh, one of the people who built this institution, so not literally the building, but without his work, this Cato Institute would not be here. The voice of liberty would be stilled. You would not have the representation you have in the national debate. David Bowes has devoted his entire life to the promotion of liberty as a writer, as a thinker, as a scholar, as a spokesman, as an as, I must say, the very finest proofreader ever <laughs> in the history of the world. He can spot a typographical error at 40 paces. <laughs> and he's resp been responsible over all those years for Cato maintaining high standards, that it's classy, that our ideas are presented in the best possible way because people will judge you by how you present yourself. His book, Libertarianism of Primer, I consider one of the finest statements of libertarian thought. It's synoptic. It starts from A and goes through to Z. It's got history, economics, law, philosophy, politics, and more. He's currently taking a semi-leave of absence from the Institute, uh, working just a few days of work uh, uh, per week here, to revise it so that a second edition will be coming out uh, next year. So with no further ado, Please welcome David Bowes. Thank you, Tom. Everything I know about libertarianism I learned from Tom Palmer. Um, that's probably true for many of you. Um, I hope you've had a great time at Cato University this year. Uh, I hope you'll come back when we're in Rancho Bernardo uh, in California. Great place also. Uh, this is a great week to be having Cato University because libertarianism is busting out all over these days. Everybody's talking about libertarianism, which certainly wasn't always the case. My local newspaper is the Washington Post, one of the uh, great uh, agenda-setting newspapers in the United States, and just in the last few weeks, I have gotten up in the morning to find stories in the Washington Post headlined, How Libertarian Does the GOP Want to Be? Making Libertarians of Us All. Libertarianism is hot. And just this morning, on the front page, above the fold, the Washington Post had a headline, Libertarianism's Rise Has the GOP Boiling. I hope soon it'll have the Democrats boiling, too. <laughs> There's a lot of reasons that libertarianism has gotten to the point it is now. Uh, certainly, one of them is the general failures of big government, from communism and national socialism to the welfare state. Another is important books. And one of the things that I thought was great about this story in the Washington Post today was that it not only talked about Rand Paul and Ron Paul and uh, Chris Christie and various things like that, um, but it specifically mentioned something I told the reporter, that an earlier surge of libertarianism was occasioned partly by the Nobel Prizes that went to Hayek and Friedman and the National Book Award that went to Robert Nozick in the 70s. So important books have been a part of developing the surge in libertarianism. Institutions like the Cato Institute and other think tanks and 
Someday we're going to have libertarian organizations that are not think tanks, but for now, a lot of us think tanks. But one of the things that certainly had a significant influence on the greater visibility of libertarianism over the past few years was Ron Paul's presidential campaign in 2008. Really, I should say Ron Paul's presidential campaign in 2007, because that's actually when it was getting most of the attention. And one of the things I noticed back then, or, or maybe it's fair to say I didn't notice it back then, I noticed it four years later when he ran again, was in 2007 and early 2008, what was Ron Paul talking about? Well, he was talking about sound money, but everybody thought the Federal Reserve was doing a fine job, so nobody was paying a lot of attention. He was talking about overspending and deficits, but Republicans still had their fingers in their ears about overspending because there was a Republican president, so it couldn't be true. Uh, he was talking about the endless wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, but Republicans were insisting the surge is working, so their voters weren't really listening. And then we had a financial crisis, and we responded to it with bailouts and corporate takeovers, and then subsequently the economic stimulus, the biggest spending bill in the history of the world, and then the health care takeover. And that created some change. And the second time Ron Paul ran for president, in 2011, when he talked about sound money and the failures of the Federal Reserve, more people were listening. When he talked about overspending, now that there's a Democratic president, Republican voters were willing to listen. When he talked about the endless wars, even Republicans were starting to say, we have been at war for a long time. So his second campaign made more of an impact in that way. And then, of course, the stimulus and the bailouts and Obamacare and everything led to the Tea Party and a resurgence of America's small government attitude. It's a very important part of American thinking generally. It had kind of been on the ropes throughout the Bush years, throughout the financial crisis, and then the stimulus and Obamacare in particular sort of brought it back. And around that time, there was a journalist at a big establishment, Washington, publication who wrote, the philosophical casualty of the Great Recession was supposed to be libertarianism, but signs to the contrary are thriving. Americans are increasingly opposed to activist government programs. The most significant social movement of 2009, the Tea Party, grew out of that opposition. The Obama administration brought with it ambitions of a resurgence of FDR and LBJ's active state liberalism. And with it, Obama has revived the enduring American challenge to the state, which is great. Of course, it would be even better if the regular backlash against big government power grabs happened before the power got grabbed, but better late than never. Uh, so I do think that is absolutely correct. When the government, and we know there's been a lot of government growth, when the government oversteps, pushes beyond what the American people are willing to accept, that's when you see the resurgence of the fundamental libertarian attitudes that very much characterize America. What else was happening in that period of the financial crisis and President Obama's response to it? Well, sales of Atlas Shrugged were soaring. Sales of the road to serfdom were soaring. On October 11, 2009, the Cato Institute's pocket constitution 
made the Washington Post bestseller list. <laughs> and I happen to know that, well, I thought I had a pocket constitution here. Oh, well. Um, good for you. Um, I happen to know that even though we made the bestseller list in October 2009, we actually sold more copies in 2010. They kept going up. Polls asking people whether they prefer small government with fewer services or, more, or larger government with more services shifted in that period in the direction of smaller government. The Washington Post had an article saying the percentage saying smaller government is up 20 points in the 18 months since Obama accepted the Democratic nomination. At that point, it was 58% of Americans said smaller government, 38% said larger government. But the problem with that question, and I've studied this question as it's asked by a lot of pollsters, the question they ask is, would you prefer smaller government with fewer services or larger government with more services? Well, so what they're telling you is the benefit of larger government, at least in the eyes of many people and the cost of smaller government. What they're not telling you is the benefit of smaller government. So some pollsters ask a different question. They say, would you prefer smaller government with fewer services and lower taxes? Or they don't even say larger. The pollster I, whose work I follow, he doesn't say larger government. He says, or would you prefer more active government with more services and higher taxes and he gets a margin of about 66% to 22%. So you, you, tell, you just remind people all those services will have to be paid for, and it shifts like 15 points in the smaller government direction. So that was happening. Also around that time, 2010, the Gallup poll, one of the questions they ask regularly, is the government trying to do too many things that should be left to businesses and individuals? Gallup poll found 57% of Americans said yes. Doesn't sound like a lot to us, but in fact, it was the highest number since 1994. Now, if you're a Democratic congressman, the suggestion that it's a lot like 1994 was kind of scary. And indeed, it turned out it was a lot like 1994. But that number, 57%, then went up to 61%. So there was a lot of uh, opposition to the government trying to do too many things that should be left to businesses and individuals. And some people, of course, there were a lot of headlines, called this a turn to the right. The Tea Party, the opposition to Obamacare, the concern about the deficit in spending. And you could call that a turn to the right, but there's some other things going on simultaneously with this turn to the right. One is increasing numbers of Americans support legalization of marijuana. Not because President Obama favored it, he didn't. He mocked people who asked him about it. He made fun of people who sent questions in to his town halls about this. So with no support from the president or really any other Democrat, support for legalization of marijuana was rising during the Obama years, culminating in two votes in Washington and Colorado uh, last fall um, to decriminalize marijuana. And then there was gay marriage. Another issue that you might expect a liberal Democratic president to support, but he did not. Uh, throughout his campaign, throughout his presidency, until the middle of last year, he was an opponent of gay marriage, and yet throughout the Obama years, more and more Americans came to support marriage equality. So if we're looking at polls that show opposition to Obamacare, opposition to overspending, 
support for marijuana reform, support for marriage equality, we're not exactly seeing a turn to the right. We're kind of seeing a libertarian trend in American uh, attitudes. And then after all of these things have been going on for several years, we get to 2013 after the president is reelected. Um, no matter how bad a job the president does, no matter how much people don't like the Democratic agenda, the Republicans always manage to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Um, so the president gets reelected, and 2013 opens with just the libertarian Lollapalooza of scandals. How many scandals have we had this spring? Let me count the ways. There was the IRS targeting Tea Party groups. There was the cover-up and lies about what happened in Benghazi. There was the revelation that the government was scooping up the telephone records of AP reporters. There was the revelation that the government was spying on both the phone calls and the emails of a Fox News reporter and listing him as a person to be indicted. There was the revelation that the Health and Human Services Secretary was soliciting donations from the health companies she regulates to promote Obamacare. There was the revelation of the EPA senior employees using secret email addresses to avoid transparency. You will all be glad to hear that the non-existent EPA employee Richard Windsor won an award for ethics. <laughs> it is possible it's not that hard to win the government's award for ethics. And then of course, and this really is in a different category. This is not malfeasance. This is not mistake. This is not rogue bureaucrats. Then, of course, there were the revelations about the massive surveillance of all our phone calls and emails by the National Security Agency, which, from the Obama administration's point of view, at least had the beneficial effect of pushing all the other scandals out of the newspapers. So at least we're only talking about those. And as all these revelations were coming out, I wrote something in May I think on the Cato website, saying, now that the Obama administration's abuse of power has got our attention, can we broaden our focus to take in health care mandates, recess appointments, campus speech regulations, the anti-constitutional independent payment advisory board, similar extra legislative bodies in Dodd-Frank, the expropriation of Chrysler creditors, and illegal wars? But even in the absence of media attention to those more serious issues, the scandals and revelations pushed a lot of Americans in a libertarian direction. These things, a lot of them were happening in May, June. They revived memories of Rand Paul's filibuster over drone attacks a couple of months earlier. They got senators of both parties asking tough questions about what Congress had authorized and what the national security state and the IRS were doing. They were indeed so shocking, and this actually was before the spying revelations, this was just based on the IRS uh, political abuse, that Michael Gerson, the former speech writer to President George W. Bush, and now the most vociferously anti-libertarian columnist in the entire world, wrote a column titled, Making Libertarians of Us All. Now you know you have got to abuse power something awful to make Michael Gerson start thinking libertarian thoughts. And maybe this revival of libertarianism and libertarian attitudes is not just in the United States. 
Six years ago, when I'm, when I'm asked by reporters sometimes, is there, is there a rise in libertarian sentiment, what I will tell them is six years ago there was no national libertarian student group. Now there are two, Students for Liberty and Young Americans for Liberty. That's incredible progress. And Students for Liberty in particular is not content to have brought 1,400 American college students to a convention last February. They are moving to create European Students for Liberty and African Students for Liberty. And just this week, 300 African students attended the founding conference of African Students for Liberty. That really is incredible, and I hope some journalists will take note of it. I sent a note to one uh, international journalist today saying, here's a story you ought to be looking at. Um, in Great Britain, The Economist reported on a poll recently. What they said was, young Britons have turned strikingly liberal in a classical sense. They're talking about a poll. The young want Leviathan to butt out of their paychecks as well as their bedrooms. Britain's youth are not just more liberal than their elders, they are also more liberal than any previous generation. And then, you can believe this if you want to, but I read it on the internet. 81.2% of the protesters in the public square in Turkey told pollsters they were libertarian. I don't know what libertarian. I don't know what libertarian means in Turkey. I don't know what the actual question was, but that's what was reported on a Turkish newspaper website. So this has been fun lately. But that's all politics and political attitudes can change. And what's important for us here at the Cato Institute, for libertarian scholars, for the libertarian movement in general, I think, is to develop and promote the principles of liberty and limited government. And in that regard, we cannot count on politicians. It's up to us, all of us broadly, but still up to us, few enough of us, that we need to accept personal responsibility for this. First thing we need to talk about is what we stand for. What are the principles that we believe in? I like to use Adam Smith's phrase, the simple system of natural liberty. Make a few rules like don't hit other people and don't take their stuff, and then let people do as they will, and you get a simple system of natural liberty. And it creates economic growth, progress, progress that was unprecedented in the world, in the world before Adam Smith's time. Another way to put it, a more specific way, I think, is no one has the right to initiate aggression against the person or property of anyone else. That, I think, is the more specific core of libertarianism. And that, too, can be summed up as don't hit other people and don't take their stuff. That's what it means. Do not, no one has the right to initiate aggression against people who have not themselves used aggression. If we follow these rules, we get a society of progress and economic growth and a broadening standard of living, not for the rich, 
but for everybody, for the poor, for the middle class. And remember, everybody in the middle class was poor a couple of generations ago. That's what capitalism will do for you. And that's important. But to my mind, at least, we're not talking just about utilitarianism or better outcomes. If you just say as a scientist, how could I improve the lot of the worst off in the United States or the world? The answer would be the rules of libertarianism. But to me, it's not just about economics. It is that we believe that people have a right to be free, that, they, that we believe that people have a right to live their lives as they choose, so long as they don't interfere with the equal rights of others. And so we are for the better outcomes that are produced, but what we're really for is freedom and limited government. Some of you may have read or seen on television the very long-standing journalist Robert Novak. He used to be on CNN and Fox toward the end of his life. He had a column in the Washington Post for 40 or 50 years. And I had an opportunity to uh, be at a little luncheon for him uh, when he published his memoirs not long before he died. And I remember one of the things he said there was, whenever I get invited to deliver a commencement address uh, at a college, which is like about 1% of this, 1% as many times as all the liberal journalists get. But when I get invited to give one, one of the things I tell the young people is always love your country but never trust your government. That's a pretty good principle in the United States and Turkey and a lot of other places. Love your country, love the people, love its history, but don't trust the government any farther than you can throw it. It is a lesson we have to continually relearn, and some people have a lot of trouble with it. About a year ago, on the 4th of July, in America's leading newspaper, the New York Times, an author named Kurt Anderson took the occasion of Independence Day, the anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, to complain at length that there's too much freedom in modern America. But he wrote some interesting things. He wrote, for hippies and bohemians, as for business people and investors, extreme individualism has been triumphant. And reminiscing about his youth in uh, the 60s, I guess, he said back then, greed as well as homosexuality was a love that dared not speak its name. Then he said what the left and right respectively love and hate are mostly flip sides of the same libertarian coin minted around 1967. Thanks to the 60s, we are all shamelessly selfish. This is what the New York Times thought would be a good way to celebrate America's birth. Well, Kurt Anderson calls it selfish. We call it self-reliance, minding your own business, staying out of unnecessary wars, and raising everybody's standard of living by pursuing your own interest and your own profit. My friend Brian Doherty, an editor at Reason Magazine, wrote a great history of the libertarian movement a few years ago called Radicals for Capitalism. And in it, he makes two arguments. And they might sound like they can't be reconciled. First, he says, libertarian ideas are radical. And then he says, they are deeply rooted in Western civilization, which now, quote, runs on approximately libertarian principles. 
Well, it's an interesting question. Can they both be true? I think they are both true. They are radical. They have challenged the established order in every era of history, and particularly in the last 500 years as they came together as a body of thought in England and the Netherlands and Western Europe and the United States. And they swept away a lot of the vestiges of the old order. Unfortunately, some of those vestiges have come back in modern guise. We got rid of the divine right of kings. We seem to have reestablished the divine right of Congress. And now we're getting back to the divine right of the president. Nevertheless, libertarians have a record to be proud of. We have been fighting ignorance, superstition, privilege, and power for many centuries. Brian Doherty wrote a great book. The New York Times ran a long review of it, which seemed kind of ignorant. And one of the things it said was, well, he complains, you know, he's always telling you how great libertarianism is, but he doesn't tell you about the libertarians who haven't respected the rights of others. Really? What are those? Well, he says, Ayn Rand testified before the House Un-American Activities Committee. Most of you are too young to remember the, the era of HUAC. This was back when there were actual communists in America, and they were investigating them. Yes, it's true, Ayn Rand did testify, and some people would say you should not cooperate with a congressional witch hunt like that. But that's kind of rich coming from a newspaper that won a Pulitzer Prize for covering up the terror famine in Ukraine. All Ayn Rand said was there are communist ideas being put in American movies, but you shouldn't censor them. That's not the way you answer bad ideas. The New York Times won a Pulitzer Prize for Walter Durante's reporting from Ukraine, and then their reporter Herbert Matthews played an important role in imposing Fidel Castro on the people of Cuba. So for them to suggest that some libertarian once said communism was a bad idea is a rich irony. Then they said, well, Murray Rothbard supported Strom Thurmond for president in 1948. Well, he sort of did. He was 22 years old, um, and it is embarrassing. And all those whose friends and forebears did not support the fellow traveling communist Henry Wallace in 1948 are entitled to criticize. And then the New York Times said, well, what about Milton Friedman? He advised the dictator of Chile, Pinochet, about how to have a better economy. Well, yes, that's what he did. He held a 45-minute meeting with a military dictator, and he told him, if you follow the certain rules, you will have a better economy. So I just wonder, should he have refused to advise the head of Chile's government on how to lift the burden from its people? And I noticed that the New York Times did not criticize Friedman for having a much longer relationship with the communist government of China. He went to China several times and he met at greater length with the leaders of China. And maybe in both Chile and China, he played some role in bringing those people out of the darkness and into a more modern world. Chile now has the fastest growing, most successful economy in Latin America, and China has brought more people out of poverty in the past generation than any country in history. Neither country is a libertarian paradise, but that's not a bad uh, record. And then he said, finally, Brian Doherty 
what about this guy who was an anti-Semite? And I read this review and I said, and, and I, I wrote this actually in a blog post at the time, despite 30 years in the libertarian movement and despite having read this book, I've never heard of this guy. But I go back, flipping through the index, flipping through the pages, and I finally find, oh yes, there's a reference to a guy who was an anti-Semite. And what did it say? It said that Leonard Reed, one of the actual founding fathers of the libertarian movement, told people, don't have anything to do with this guy, he's an anti-Semite. So how does the New York Times know the guy's an anti-Semite? Because Leonard Reed told people to stay away from him. So if that's the sum total of embarrassing libertarian moments, it's a pretty darn good record over 70 years or so. Modern liberals have to deal with the fact, not an embarrassing one, but a shameful one, that many of their forebears supported Stalin and the Communist Party, or were at least fellow travelers. As for conservatives, I could mention their long resistance to liberty and legal equality for blacks, women, and gays, but instead I'll just say, George W. Bush and the Iraq War. In 70 years, libertarians have done nothing to compare to expressing support for limited government while also supporting Bush, his disastrous war, and his accumulation of unprecedented presidential power. So I go back to the point I made earlier. Libertarians have a record to be proud of and a record to build on. And sometimes, the task of advancing freedom in our world seems overwhelming. But let me tell you about some people who took on a far more fearsome state than our own. This story starts about 30 years ago, and because there are so many young people in the room, I have to start a little earlier than 30 years ago. And I have to tell you that when I was growing up in the 1960s, and when some of you were growing up in the 50s, um, and into the 70s and the 80s, the world was, in a sense, divided in two. It was divided by an iron curtain between the relatively free countries of the West and the unfree countries of the Soviet Empire and China. Behind the iron curtain, they called it. In those countries, there was no freedom. There was no economic freedom, no property rights, no freedom of religion, no freedom of speech. In China, in particular, not even the freedom of silence. People were not allowed to go about their lives as long as they kept their heads down. They were required to go to public meetings and confess their sins and call out the sins of their neighbors. That's the world that many of us were born into. And we sort of took it for granted. The world is divided in two. There is a communist half of the world. That's, where, that's how we live. But then about 1978, as part of the Cold War between these two parts of the world, the United States expressed interest in putting U.S. nuclear weapons in Europe. And there were a lot of people in Europe who didn't like the idea of having nuclear weapons there. And the East German Communist Party, the government, encouraged people to protest against it. Pretty easy to encourage citizens of East Germany to protest against the United States putting weapons in West Germany. But anyway, they did encourage people to hold marches and protest U.S. nuclear weapons. And so a sort of peace movement was created. It was supposed to be an official peace movement against the enemies of the regime. But some of the people who took part in the peace movement, which was heavily based in Protestant churches, which in Germany they had not been able to completely eradicate, 
some of the people in the peace movement began to pray for peace. And this got them to thinking about things like opposing mandatory army service in eastern Germany and opposing military classes in grade school. And these activists were watched and persecuted, but given the arrangement of forces, the church was still a relatively protected place. So if they were inside the church praying, they could get away with that. And prayers for peace on Monday evenings became a regular thing at St. Nicholas Church, Nikolai Kirka, uh, in Leipzig, the second largest city in Germany, where Martin Luther once preached against power and corruption. And under constant pressure from the state, attendance at these peace prayers shrank to fewer than 10 people each week uh, by the mid-1980s. But it was the only center for dissent in a totalitarian country, and slowly attendance began to grow. And in the late 1980s, Gorbachev's reforms gave them some hope. He was over there in Moscow talking about Glasnost. And so there were some peace groups in the churches. And by 1989, the agents of the Stasi, the secret police, were monitoring nearly 200 separate citizens' groups. And I must say, all of this is going on without much notice in the West. Some of these facts are in the newspapers, but since we have completely internalized the idea that the world is divided forever into free countries and unfree countries, we're not paying much attention. In East Germany, because it's so close to West Germany and they speak the same language, they never managed to block West German television broadcasts. So young people could see the way Germans lived on the other side of the wall, and they began to want that life. In 1987, hundreds of teens gathered in Berlin chanting, the wall must go, because they wanted to attend a David Bowie concert. <laughs> to each his own. But. And then May 7, 1989, they held local elections in East Germany. Now, we in the West always knew that elections in the communist countries were a farce. 99% of the people voted, and 99% of them voted for the Communist Party. But it's not clear that people in the communist countries realize that's not how real elections go. So some of the people within the churches decided Let's be volunteer election observers. We'll go out and uh, watch the voting in, in all the different voting places, and then we'll come back here to the church and compare results. And when they did, they came to realize what we saw doesn't match what they're telling us on the television. And they realized these were fraudulent elections. So they're starting to think we're being lied to. This system isn't working. And then... June of 1989, the crackdown in Tiananmen Square was a reminder to people of what communist states might do to protesters. There was no precedent for a peaceful transfer of power in Germany, and the minister of the Nikolai Kirka said some years later, it wasn't imaginable that the German Democratic Republic would end. And fear of a Chinese solution to their peace prayers grew. But Gorbachev was sending signals that the Soviet Union was no longer going to intervene in the internal affairs of the Eastern European satellites. So that summer, Hungary relaxed its border restrictions, and thousands of, Germanies, thousands of Germans traveled to Hungary and then fled into Austria. 
More Germans went to Prague, again, all these countries behind the Iron Curtain, so they could travel there. More of them went to Prague, and they climbed over the fence of the West German embassy. And under international law, that meant at that point they were in West German territory. So the Czech government cannot come and get them. And after a summer break, thousands of people showed up at the Nikolai Kirka on Monday, September 4th. And about that time, in front of Western TV cameras that had come to Leipzig for a trade show, young protesters unfurled a banner demanding freedom of travel. The Stasi ripped it down and tackled the kids, the minister remembers, and millions of East Germans saw that on TV. And a week later, the crowd doubled. And in response to the people leaving Germany, those people chanted, Wir bleiben hier. We're staying here. Monday demonstrations were held at Lutheran churches all across East Germany. The next Monday night, 15,000 people marched in Leipzig. This is now becoming unprecedented. 15,000 people marching against the totalitarian communist government? This doesn't happen. On October 9th, another Monday night, the police prepared to deal with 20,000 protesters. But as the crowd poured out of the church, and this is what I've read, I've been to that church, I went to it a few years later. Um, you couldn't get many people in that church. But uh, according to the reports, as the crowd poured out of the church, more than 70,000 Leipzigers joined them. The minister recalled 70,000 people who didn't know if they'd come home intact or see their families again. It was a heroic and enormous act of moral courage. And slowly the crowd began walking around Leipzig's Ring Road. And the police waited for their orders to come. What are we supposed to do? And no orders came. So the policemen there on the street backed off and let the people march. And at the moment the police backed off, that was the end of the German communist state. But nobody knew it at the time. The next week on October 16th, it was 150,000 people. The week after that, it was 300,000 as people from all over East Germany joined the peaceful march in Leipzig. That week, the party leadership fell. Not the party, not the party's governance, but the leaders of the party were deposed. On Saturday, November 4th, 1989, more than 500,000 people marched, not in Leipzig, but in the capital of East Berlin. And five days after that, the Berlin Wall the wall that was a permanent part of my childhood and my adult life, the wall built to keep people in, was opened. And millions of people were suddenly, amazingly, unanticipatedly free. They could travel. And a few years later, I had the opportunity to attend a conference in Leipzig, and I sat at a table like this, next to the former mayor of Leipzig, Wolfgang Tiefensee. And I asked him, were you involved in the protests? And he said, oh yes. And then he said to me, 
from September 1989, and I hope you know what the Bible tells us, we walked seven times around the city and then the wall came down. Seven times from September until November 1989. The minister looks back on the events and says no outside force could have done this. That would have meant war. What happened was a self-liberation. Soft water breaks the hardest stone, unquote. There is no army, no state, no government program that is as powerful as an idea whose time has come. But it's up to people to make the idea's time come. We have it so much easier than that. We don't have to risk our lives, but we do know that freedom isn't free. That's why we're here in this room. So we need to do something to advance freedom in our own country and in the world. And as we think about our own lives and our work for freedom, let me give you a few maybe practical suggestions. Number one, what does libertarianism not mean? It doesn't mean insisting on rigid adherence to one political leader or one sacred book. Although if you had to pick one, it would be libertarianism a primer. <laughs> but don't pick one. So if you came here because of one political candidate or one great writer, that's great. You are welcome. We're glad you found us. But there's more to the libertarian vision than that, as you've been learning all week. So educate yourself. It's a deep tradition. Read some economics, some history, some philosophy. Read Locke and Smith and the Federalist Papers and Mill and Spencer and Mises and Hayek and Rand, many of which can be found in the Libertarian Reader. Read Murray Rothbard's Introduction to Libertarianism, which is a little too anarchist, and Charles Murray's Introduction to Libertarianism, which is a little too conservative, and Libertarianism a primer, which is just right. <laughs> Number two, read anti-libertarian writers, too. There's a reading list at libertarianism.org. We're not afraid to have you read our books and the other books. Uh, you can also find anti-libertarian uh, uh, reading selections in the back of the libertarian reader. And try to understand them. Try to get where they're coming from. Why do they see the world differently? Take the ideological Turing test. Some of you may know what the Turing test was. Uh, the great um, uh, computer scientist Alan Turing came up with. It's how would you know if a computer genuinely had artificial intelligence? It would be if you could uh, basically exchange emails with it and not know that it wasn't human. They're still working on that. But my friend Brian Kaplan came up with an idea called the ideological Turing test, which is can you articulate the views of someone else's political philosophy in such a way that he won't know you don't really agree with him? And what he said was, I will bet that on average libertarians and conservatives can do it better than people on the left because we have to hear people on the left. They dominate the newspapers and the academy and so on. And, and they don't have to listen to libertarians and conservatives, so they don't know how we think. Um, I wrote uh, a blog post, uh, a Facebook post, I think, uh, last year. It was critical of something that the New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman had written. And the first response on Facebook was, Thomas Friedman is an idiot. 
a compelling refutation. <laughs> and immediately, eight people clicked that they liked that. <laughs> That's not how you win an argument. That's not how you understand what the other person is thinking. So try to understand what people are thinking, and then you'll be able to do a better job of refuting them. Number three, America's multicultural these days. Whether you like it or not, we can no longer be like the American Revolution, a movement of white guys. We're going to have to reach out. We're going to have to have a broader movement. We've got to think about how other people hear us. If you go around saying things like America was a free country before the Civil War and now it isn't, don't expect very many Americans in 2013 to find that a uh, compelling argument. All right, it's clearly time to wrap this up. I was asked once by some skeptics what the most important libertarian accomplishment ever was. And I thought for a moment and I said, the abolition of slavery. Okay, they conceded, name another. I thought the abolition of slavery was pretty good. <laughs> I would gladly go to my maker with that on my resume. But they said, no, name another. So I thought a little more carefully and then I said, bringing power under the rule of law. That, I think, is the fundamental libertarian achievement. It was, in fact, achieved. It was a revolutionary achievement, but it is incomplete. It's what the levelers and John Locke and the American founders fought for. It's what the protesters in 1989 fought for. It's what Mao Yuxi and Chen Guangcheng and thousands of other Chinese people are fighting for right now in challenging circumstances. It's what at least a few of the people in Egypt are fighting for right now. And it is what we continue to fight for. So thank you for being part of that historic struggle. And good night. <laughs>